Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Aaron is up again this week. Why don't you? Back again. Yes. Why don't you (laughs) remind folks what you've brought to the table? All right. So we are back with part two of We Do This Till We Free Us. Right. Uh, So once again, it's by Miriam Kaba. It's a bunch of essays and interviews, old and new, that establish her view on abolitionist politics and movement work. Um, So this week we're going to focus on parts five, six, and seven, because we talked about parts one, two, three, and four last week. Um, So to set the stage a little bit, uh, the titles for these parts are part five, We Must Practice and Experiment, Abolitionist Organizing in Theory. Part six is Accountability is Not Punishment, Transforming How We Deal with Harm and Violence. Part seven is Show Up and Don't Travel Alone, We Need Each Other. So these parts of the book, book, I think, really built on the previous parts uh, and added extra nuance to the previous chapters. Um, so, yeah, let's let's jump in and take this part by part, kind of like last time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, first things first, and I, I know I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again now that we've finished it. Uh, you know, folks, this is an incredible book absolutely, and, and, and body of work, and it, it might sound a little cheesy, but... I, I I do feel enriched as a as a result of reading it. You know, do you do you feel that? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot here that I think informs I think gives me words and, and more like kind of context for maybe some of the ways that I was already feeling or thinking. Yes. Um yeah, so I, I feel like that's good. And I also think that it it challenged and, and pushed me in different ways that I think we'll talk about a little bit here um today, but uh, yeah, I felt like that that happened sort of personally too. As I was reading, I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I do need to pull some of these things apart and and think about them and how they play out in my life, um, you know, day to day or at work or you know where wherever." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think particularly for me in these last three parts, but really the whole book, there was a lot of challenge, uh, yeah, challenging yeah, yeah. moments. So I appreciate that. Um, you know, I also just think that there's so much in this book to learn, right, about abolition, about the idea of what justice could be beyond our current punishment system, um, about the principles of, of harm and accountability, uh, about activism and, and organizing work and, and what should be centered in those efforts, mm-hmm. and, and about, I think, envisioning a, a better world for all of us. Yeah. And, you know, in thinking about all of that, I, I also feel that so much of the content in this book is, is, as we just mentioned, deep and challenging because I think, you know, as Miriam says throughout it, um, and as you mentioned last week, I think so much of what's not working in our systems is deeply entrenched in our society, um, but it's also embedded in all of us as individuals, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think this book really helps to illuminate that and, and provides a really a thorough rationale for why abolition is the only way for us to have and get to collective liberation. Mm. Um, so uh, if it's not clear, I'm, I'm grateful that we read this book and I feel like I'm going to be revisiting it as 
often as I can to uh, continue to develop uh, my abolitionist framework. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad we've had these couple of episodes. I'm excited to talk uh, about the second part of this book with you today. So I'm curious, what stood out to you in part five? Let's start there. Yeah, I think, so one thing I'll jump on and tag on to you saying um, about um, revisiting the book is that I think that that's also a really great purpose of this because it's essays, right? Like the th- there are themes throughout, yeah. right? But they are individual pieces of work. Um, and so you can dip into certain parts and like refresh something for yourself yes, um, or learn something, right? Like if you haven't read it before and you're like, oh, I'm really interested in that. Like, I think you don't have to read this in a linear fashion. Absolutely. Um, is, is I think my main point there. But um, I think one of the, one of the big pieces that I really appreciated in part five was that there have to be small community oriented experiments as we find our way toward abolition. Um, So there's a lot of conversations here about organizing different campaigns um, that are focused on freeing people by pressuring authorities, uh, attending to prisoner needs uh, and raising awareness and funds. And so that was one of the, one of the parts of of one of the chapters, one of the essays. Um, So these focused attempts to free like individual people are part of a larger um, strategy of abolition right sort of and it's connected to but different from bail reform which is you know a movement that's happening mass communication campaigns to like spread awareness around what abolition is and um, different pieces of the criminal punishment system and and kind of illuminating what they do um, or don't do uh, advocating for laws that will help offer new pathways for release from incarceration so there's this really great point made uh, in this part about participatory defense campaigns um, and how they're connected to prison reforms um, and how prison reforms sometimes just, as we've said before in different ways, re-entrench the current system, right? Yep. Um, so an example that uh, Miriam Kaba pulls from history is that in the 19th century, there was a lot of discussion around prison reform, um, particularly around uh, women and how women were treated in right. the um, in the prison system. Uh, and so, you know, to make that, to, to reform that, they created women's prisons, mm-hmm. right? Which you're like, okay, well then you'll be treated better there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, but now there's more women incarcerated right? Um, because they created prisons. And so, you know, you got to put people in a prison. That's generally how our system has worked. You, right. you build a prison and you fill it with people. And there's more uh, black and brown women yes, in those absolutely, spaces right. as well, right? Um, so, yeah, I appreciated that point, right, like that we can reform our ways into into re-entrenching the current system as it stands. Yep. Um, but I think this part of the book uh, was really wide-ranging with different kinds of ways to engage in abolitionist organizing from these, as I mentioned before, participatory defense campaigns to um, firing police officers. And she talks about a specific case in Chicago where that was some of the work there to reparations for police torture um, that happened again in Chicago um, to advocating for um, or against rather a new police training center being built. And so all of these different pieces are different ways to engage in abolitionist organizing. And they're all experiments um, that, that help lead to a different future that is more just and, and more about 
um, our communities. Yeah, absolutely. It speaks to that point that we talked about in our last episode about imagination too, right? Like that that's mm-hmm. that, that's what we need here. Um, and so, I, yeah, I definitely had some similar thoughts. And, you know, I was particularly compelled in this section or, or part of the book by the conversations about activism and, and yeah. organizing work. Um, and specifically, uh, this idea about how real change and progress as a result of that work almost always takes a lot of time. Yes. You know, yeah. uh, because I think that's an important concept for folks engaged in this work to, to hear about and to understand. Uh, so one example of that was in the chapter, and you just alluded to Chicago a lot, mm-hmm. uh, was in the chapter about the reparations and legislation that came to be in Chicago in the wake of John Burge and other police officers torturing black men in the city for decades. Yep. In that torture, uh, you know, Miriam Kaba described it as unspeakable acts of cruelty um, because it included things like those officers electrocuting, beating, and suffocating uh, dozens, I actually think it was closer to like 200 um, of of black men in an effort to garner confessions from them, um, again, over the course of two decades, which is just reprehensible. but to get to this place in 2015 where the Chicago City Council actually passed legislation to provide reparations to those uh, victims and offer them and their families counseling and, and priority access to things like housing and transportation and a whole host of other things um, that came out of this legislation, it took years of activism work and organizing by coalitions and community organizations, right? Um yeah. You know, and Miriam Cabo specifically talked about rallies and marches and train takeovers and the the tremendous amount of organizing work done by these coalitions to help advocate for um, and get this legislation passed. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, I really appreciated uh, her, her talking about and highlighting was recognizing the importance of the sustained resilience of organizations that were doing this work even back in the 1990s um, right. and how that work served as a foundation and a roadmap for this future work that we see um, and saw and that she was a part of. And so, you know, all of that is sort of what I mean when I talk about real change and progress taking a tremendous amount of time. And, and I think resilience is a really good, a good word to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and as a related sort of aside, I guess, you know, there was a part in the last chapter of this section, part five, that, that talked about how organizing is mostly about defeats. And that was sort of a, you know, a big point there. Right. Um, and yeah. I think that's such an incredible uh, an important thing to recognize about this work uh, as well. And so, you know, all that to say, I, I appreciated Miriam Kava for, for calling attention to the realities of this kind of work, you know, and, and also for shining a light on this torture that took place in Chicago, um, because it's a huge case in the conversation about police brutality and the treatment of black folks by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously is a significant uh, reason uh why we need abolition. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that was mentioned in a part we read last week was that Miriam Kaba was talking about how um, she sees herself in like sort of a, a bigger movement space yeah. for uh, and toward abolition and that this is, right, she's in in a part of it and contributing to a part of it that serves as a roadmap for 
much later from now. Yeah. Um, and so that also sort of sets her context and expectations um, and grounds her in what she's doing now to provide for um, like future generations who are going to take up this work. Right. And like, yeah. you know, what's the lineage? And she talks about lineage at some point uh, in this uh, part of the book, too. I don't know if it's actually this part or. Right. If, if, if it's in five, six or seven. But um, at some point she does talk about this, like the lineage that you hold and, and um, where that where your organizing sort of tradition comes from. Right. Um, and that being uh, a critical part to think about as you're laying a roadmap or foundation for future work, um, which these organizers did in the 90s up till. 2015 when that right was passed right? yeah that's some incredible sort of self-awareness for her and positioning yeah. herself in the context of this whole journey that we're on um and the right. work that she wants to do and, and i think really part of the legacy she's going to leave behind yeah. in this uh yeah i, what I, I love that. yeah and i think it's it's both self-awareness but it's also sort of like community or movement awareness too of like yeah this isn't about me and what i can accomplish right now because i'm part of like I'm one piece of a larger picture and I'm connected to these other people um, and stuff. And so I'm, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about this much later in our conversation Yeah. Um, as uh, there's a piece of this in part seven. But um, I think, you know, to connect back to this piece about defeats, mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to understand that because yeah. of this roadmap piece. Like um, I appreciated the, I think the chapter you're alluding to is a love letter to the hashtag no cop Academy. Yep. Um, movement that was in Chicago again. And it, so she talks a lot about Chicago because that's where her organizing work is based and that's where she's uh, living, right? Um, so she says in this uh, open letter, any organizer worth their salt knows that it's much more complex than a simple win-lose calculus mm. um, with your, your work or campaigns or, or what have you. Um, and that rings so true because part of work, part of the work is organizing a campaign to discuss radical changes and put those radical changes out as ideas into the world or into society or your community or whatever yep. um, so that they can be more palatable for the future, mm -hmm. right? And so it's bringing these ideas forward that sound like they're radical and on the fringe and, and whatever now so that in the future we can actually have a conversation about them. And sometimes that's what the work is about, right? So right. An, an example about this, I think, is like Medicare for all. Mm, so yeah. not that long ago, that sounded like a ridiculous idea. Mm -hmm. And now it's a central part of the conversation around what healthcare could look like in the future yeah. uh, in this country. So um, yeah, I know that's not necessarily directly connected to abolition. And at the same time, it is because public safety also includes healthcare and Absolutely. all the things. So, um, yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, I think that all that stuff was like really, really great. Yeah, I appreciate that. I I, I definitely uh, loved that love letter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the other things that stood out to me in part five, um, speaking of love, was the importance placed on love in mm -hmm. our movements for justice. And I actually thought of you, my friend, when I read it. Uh, and I'm curious if this part stood out to you too, because Miriam Kaba actually quoted the great Bell Hooks to talk about that. Yep. Um, and you know, y'all know we love Bell Hooks around here. Um, so to, the quote from Bell Hooks was actually, it is essential to our struggle for self-determination that we speak of love. For love is the necessary foundation, enabling us to survive the wars, the hardships, the sickness, and the dying within our spirits intact. 
It is love that allows us to survive whole. Mm. And, you know, honestly, I think this stood out to me because I think those are some really beautiful words. Um, but I also love how Miriam took that and framed it uh, as how love can work to help us build sustaining and affirming communities in the face of this relentless oppression um, that so many of us in our communities face day in and day out. Um, and, you know, as abolitionists and as organizers and, and you know, org organizations and coalitions, right, in, in this fight for for justice. So I just really appreciated that that mention and discussion of the role that love plays in this and should play in this uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can't... Um you can't organize people without love, right? Yeah. Like I think that that's a central piece of, of what we do. And there's, um, yeah, I think it's it's so crucial to activism work and to organizing work, like all of it. Um, you have to sort of find a way to center love and center what that means for you, right? Like we've yep. talked about that on the podcast here that um, Bell Hooks' definition of love actually um, has stuck with me for many years now. Yeah. Um, but Absolutely. So I really, really appreciate that too. Um, all right, let's shift a little bit. Let's talk about part six. Accountability is not punishment, transforming how we deal with harm and violence. Um, I think this had a ton of uh, challenging things in it. Uh, same um, for me too. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that that points to how ingrained punishment is in our culture here in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, she uses an example of someone who has done despicable things. Um to make a point about the differences between punishment and accountability. Mm -hmm. um, and that person is R. Kelly. Yep. Um, and so I think this was written in the wake of uh, surviving R. Kelly, the documentary series that was released. Yep. Um, so she guides us to think holistically about how there could be consequences for R. Kelly and the abuse that he caused um, and sort of the consequences around that abuse and how that could be different than prison. Yep. Um, because she, and I think she has a co-author on this particular chapter. They say, you know, we don't believe that R. Kelly should be in prison either. Like we even mean R. Kelly yeah. when we talk about abolition. Um, and so she encourages us to think about what consequences should be there for the people who are around him yeah. too. Like, you know, who enabled him? Um, right. So like, was there a manager who was enabling this abuse to happen or record record company executives, right? Like who knew about this and how do we get them to accept responsibility um, and, and sort of have consequences for what their actions were. Yeah. Um, and I think that's so key. And I think it's never discussed in the current criminal punishment system. It's always, it's so individualized of like, well, you did this mm -hmm. and you're going to be punished for it rather than thinking about, well, you did this and who who enabled you to do it? What were the conditions in which you you did this act, whatever it might be? Um, and so I also love this part um, in this chapter where she's distinguishing between consequences and punishment, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is a quote, if you were asking somebody to move to another place because they caused harm to the people living there, it's a consequence. If you're making it so that people can never have housing again, that's a punishment. So that distinction, I think, made it really clear to me about how we can shift to focusing on consequences versus punishment and how cruelty plays a part in how punishment works as well. 
And I think that also centers that consequences have to be focused in community and in relationship, right? Like it can't be some judge sitting on a bench visiting down a consequence who isn't part of that community, um, uh, right? Where the harm happened or whatever it might be, whatever transgression of right. like community values or norms might might have happened. Um, it has to be done in relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I I appreciated the the example of R. Kelly, because I think, as you said, like, at, at you know, at this point, uh, you know, for quite some time now, but, you know, he's truly a despicable figure, right? And mm-hmm. so it's I think easy, easy to despise him. Easy. Yeah. So, you know, I think he's a good example um, of, of, how, of how this sort of framework applies and can apply in that situation, right? And so, but mm-hmm. you're, I agree with you that that chapter chapter was tough for me and um and sort of this this notion is tough because it it really requires a a shift in mindset um right to get to this place to have this abolitionist mindset right if yeah uh because it's so ingrained in us as i said so yeah i i appreciated that you know so i started out in our last episode talking about what abolition is uh because that's how the book started um and because I thought it would be good to lay that foundation for our conversation. And so related to that idea is one of the things that stood out to me in part six of this book, um, which was where Miriam Kaba dived into what she sees as the guiding principles of what it means to be an abolition, mm-hmm. abolitionist. And, and I think that's important to, to know and understand. And so I wanted to bring that here to the table uh, to, to talk about as well. And so... Um, I will also say that there seemed to be a little bit more cursing in part six. I was really, I really enjoyed part six for that. Um, But no, seriously. Uh, So in this section of the book, Miriam Kaba made it crystal clear in a conversation about abolition and accountability that advocating for someone's imprisonment is not abolitionist, as, as Aaron just mentioned. And conflating your personal and emotional satisfaction for justice is also not abolitionist Mm -hmm. uh, because Mm -hmm. abolitionism is not something to be mediated by our emotional responses. Um, And I think a a good point to make clear here is that it's not that abolitionists don't recognize that folks have emotions or that emotions don't play a role uh, when we've been harmed because that's absolutely in our nature. Um, But true abolitionists believe that punishing uh, I'm sorry, that pushing for or celebrating anyone's incarceration is counter to everything that uh, prison industrial complex abolition stands for. Yeah. Um, and so one of the chapters in this section spoke directly to these um, guiding principles. And so I, uh, I want to share those and I'm going to both sort of quote and paraphrase from the book here. It says, if you declare yourself to be an abolitionist, you're committing to some basic obligations. One, prison industrial complex abolition calls for the elimination of policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. Two, abolition rejects the expansion in breadth and scope or legitimization of all aspects of the prison industrial complex, including surveillance, policing, sentencing, and imprisonment of all sorts. Three, abolition refuses premature death and organized abandonment, which are the state's modes of reprisal and punishment. Mm -hmm. And then later on in the chapter, they go on to say, abolition offers both a framework for a much needed structural analysis of the world and the practical organizing strategy to transform it. The criminal legal system focuses on punishing or disempowering individual offenders who have done harm. 
Abolitionists, however, consider the larger social, economic, and political context in which the harm occurs. Yep. Um, and I don't think, you know, sort of given everything that we've learned about abolition up until this point in the book, that any of that is really a shock, right? You know, or that these guiding principles for abolition come out of left field. Um, I think, you know, we're at a point in the book where, you know, she felt it was time to sort of offer uh, these principles to us um, as we're thinking about and getting on board with this idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I do think that these guiding principles speak to why abolitionism is a powerful force for change and for our collective liberation, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because there are a number of places in this book where, you know, these guiding principles are discussed and every single time that they are mentioned, you know, it's clear to me that these are unwavering principles, you know, uh, of this mindset and this framework and this work. Um, they're, they're, they're simply unwavering, um, yeah. which I think really makes sense given what abolition is and, and what it's trying to accomplish. Yeah, those principles you just shared were a highlight for me too. Um, and I have, I have some thoughts on them that I'll expand on a little bit more. I think an application, okay, sweet. um, in, in my notes here. Um, but I think another piece of the text that I really appreciated, um, that I feel like is connected here to what you're saying, uh, and connected to the broader part six theme of kind of experimenting, um, is the idea that until abolitionist approaches can meet people's idealized versions of an appropriate response we think prison is the best solution. Um, and so that is at best a failure of imagination and a manifestation of blinkered thinking. Mm. Um, and I think that people, and I'm, you know, I'm including myself here because I think that we, we all have these systems in us too, right? Like if we talked about that, yeah. um, think that abolitionist abolition is this kind of like nonsense, magical thinking when you first hear about it, um, until you learn more about it. And, um, you know, as if tomorrow we're just going to say, okay, these things don't exist anymore. Right. And we're all just going to have to figure it out. And that's, you know, not at all what anybody's advocating for really. Um, and so again, that's why I think that these campaigns are important because it, it brings these ideas to the, to the conversation, to the broader, broader picture, um, and discussion, um, of what things are happening. Um, right. And so, we hear about abolition or hear about something like defund the police, which is an abolitionist strategy um, and dismiss it rather than thinking about and recognizing the, the ways that the current criminal punishment system is not working yep. and doesn't do what it claims to do. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we do that and don't recognize things and then, you know, we, we just have to find new ways to do to do all this stuff and hold each other accountable and and be in sort of community and, and relationship with one another. Absolutely. That's such yeah. a good point. I appreciate you sort of naming it that it exists for you. It exists for me, too. And and I think that's, again, just part of human nature too. this idea of you hear an idea and sometimes it's difficult to really consider it, uh, especially if it's a jarring or or. Um, wild, perhaps radical. Um, right sort of thought and, 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 you know, totally sort of in opposition to sort of your, your, your thinking and your, um, way of living and being. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I appreciate that for sure. All right. So let's shift to part seven. Um, 
I think it was in the second to last chapter where Miriam Kaba talked about the concepts of allyship and performativity as they relate to this work. And, and, and that really stood out to me. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that here mm. um, because, you know, these concepts have been things that I've been thinking about for quite some time now, um, especially through uh, and throughout last summer uh, and in the wake of last summer and in what we saw, particularly from companies and corporations and, and institutions across the country. Um, you know, I think folks will remember back to last summer where we saw so many companies and organizations release statements about and in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, uh, so many of them outlined steps that they were going to take to raise awareness and, you know, to be more socially just um, and to, to make an impact on the communities in which they serve. And, you know, here we are, I think we're almost coming up on a year later. And I think a lot of those companies and organizations have come up a little short, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think many of us have seen that uh, across the board. Um, but I will say that I've been impressed by a few companies out there, one of them being Ben and Jerry's. Um, you know, and I think I've mentioned them, I think I mentioned them last week or maybe two weeks ago, um, but I wanted to say a little bit more about them in this context. You know, first, if you're not following Ben and Jerry's on social media, especially on Instagram, I would encourage you to do so. Um, because when I think about the the saying, uh, don't just talk about it, be about it, um, I think Ben and Jerry's is doing just that uh, for the most part. Um, not only are they amplifying messages related to social justice and collective liberation on their social media platforms and on their website. I think more importantly, um, they are doing this work and living those values through their business practices as well, right? And those are values related to racial equity and, and human rights and uh, sustainable sourcing for their products and, and environmental justice and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think they are out here talking about it and being about it. And that's something that I think other companies and, and organizations can can learn from. Um, and, I, and I think that there's real power in companies and, and organizations and, and these large corporations putting their money where their mouth is um, in our in our capitalist society and and truly engaging and being a part of of this work. Yeah, I think uh, so kind of jumping back to that performative allyship piece, I think that was really a powerful part to name and sort of critique and, and for her to lay out there. Um, and I think, you know, I think that a lot of the stuff you named about Ben and Jerry's, uh, is great and they're doing some great work. And I know that they also have a facility that is operating in Israel and they've been silent on Palestine and, yes. and what's happening yeah. there. Um, and have been silent on that for years. Right. And so they're doing great work. Um, and they have not been perfect. Um, and so, um, you know, they're, they're also a company in the U.S., right? So yeah. they're, uh, as you mentioned, they're in a capitalist society. And um, there's only so much, I think, that organizations, corporations can do in within their structures that are actually going to take us anywhere. Right. Right. Um, you know, in some ways, those are going to be um, reformist reforms in a way. Right. right. So, right. um, 
Yeah. So, you know, they, they can't be perfect and they never will be in the context of, of, in which they exist. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause I just saw that, uh, about Ben and Jerry's this morning about the operating facility that's in Israel and, and their silence. And so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think you're right. It, they're a company in the U.S., so uh, they can't be perfect. They never will be. Um, but it speaks to even with the best of intentions and even uh, for a company like Ben & Jerry's that I think really is exemplifying what the work should look like for corporations. Mm. Um, it's still not perfect, right? It's right. still not 100% there, right? And you have to really be intentional in your thinking about this um, in every aspect of who you are and what you're doing and your products and your services and the ways in which you treat your employees and, and, and on, and on, on all of these issues, right. You yep. you don't get to be silent on any of them, especially if you have, you know, a facility in Israel uh, with everything that's going on right now. So uh, I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, and you know, Ben and Jerry's, if you're listening, uh, there you go. Um, so, Another side of this concept of allyship and performativity that I've been thinking about directly relates to, I think, what Miriam Kaba talks about uh, and uh, said about them in in this interview in that chapter that I just talked about. Um, she says, and I'm quoting her here, one of the on the question of allies, I've mentioned that I don't believe in allyship, mm-hmm. and I'm super bored with the concept of performativity. Yeah, I believe in strugglers, and I believe in coworkers, and I believe in solidarity. I believe we need more people all the time in all of our work, in all of our movements, in all of our struggles. The question is, how do we get folks to struggle alongside us and with us? As an organizer, this is the constant thing I am engaged in. What are the points of entry for people so that they can find a way to lend what they know how to do, their talent, their ideas to whatever it is that we're doing, while also learning in the process? Uh, and yes. I, yeah, right. But that's it. That's great. Right. I, I appreciated her thinking here. Um, you know, I, I will say, and maybe this is some work I need to do. I don't know if I'm fully on the same page with her about not believing in allyship and, and being bored mm-hmm. with performativity, but I, but I do understand the spirit of what she's saying. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I, th- I think I'm drawn to her ideas around strugglers and coworkers and solidarity and and all of us working together because I genuinely think that's the only way we're going to collectively get to the place that we want to be. Right. Um, and I've said this to you, I've, you and I have had conversations about this when my hope has wavered, right? Like times when there have been multiple incidents of police brutality against black people or times when our government just fails to protect certain communities. You know, I, I truly believe that if we're ever going to collectively get to the place that we want to be, it's going to take folks that look like you, Aaron, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and all of us in our society to, as, as Miriam Kaba says, you know, to be in this work and to be in these movements and, and to be in our struggles. Um, because I think it's gonna take the same energy and, and I think more importantly, the same kind of participation we saw from all of us, um, from all of our various communities, uh, like what we saw last summer after George Floyd was murdered, um, to again push for real change and again to get us to the place that we need to be. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, we, ha- we all have to be able to find ways into this work 
Um, and I think that that's, that's super important. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think I get your, I understand where you're coming from with your disagreement around allyship Mm -hmm. and performativity. Um, because I think that, so for me, what it is, is that I think allyship is viewed as an identifier, right? Mm -hmm. It's a label. It's an adjective that people put on themselves. Um, Right. Like it's a name tag they get to slap on or something. Right. Um, Instead of a set of actions that demonstrate actual solidarity with a community um, that is is going through a struggle, whatever that struggle might be. Um, And so I think that 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 piece of it is where for me, I'm like, I don't know that I necessarily believe in in allyship as we sort of currently talk about it Um, either. Um, And so, yeah, but I, I see you know, we need people, um, we need white men to show up and, and be like demanding change too. Yeah. Right. And so I think that that's, that's also key and important is that we have to find ways to collectively work together to find collective liberation. Yeah. Right. Cause we've talked about this before that like all of these systems of oppression that we've talked about, whether it's, um, white supremacy or patriarchy or capitalism or um, cologne, like settler colonialism, all of those things are also impact, like it's impacting everybody. Right. And so I think that's one of the key pieces of what abolition is too, is like it's rejecting this sort of strict rigid structure of victims and perpetrators. Um, And I don't think that's exactly the words that she uses in different pieces of the book, but um it's also, I think, when you apply it to what systems of oppression look like and the um, oppressed versus the oppressors, right? Like y- some of that framework is is important for us to understand. And we also have to recognize what are the contexts in which oppression is happening and who's perpetrating it and how do we how do we all unpack that both within ourselves and within our communities? And that's also, I think, a big piece of what abolition is and how we move forward. Um, and so that's why we all have to find space in movements, whether that's in an organization like Showing Up for Racial Justice that is trying to activate white people into yep. movements for racial justice, yep. um, or whether that's in you know your local movement for black lives formation, whatever that might be, or Black Youth Project 100, or... Um, immigration, um, rights campaigns, you know, whatever that might be, like we have to find spaces to, to, to jump into those, to jump into those places and and get connected and, and start doing this work. I'm having a real, a real moment here. Y'all just listening to you talk about this. Like, I think, um, like to, to pull back the curtain, right? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at a place where I feel like we, we need, and it's not just white men, you know, uh, no, all I, white people. Absolutely. Yeah. That's who you are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you say you, we need people who look like, like me. You. So I was like, uh, and I named you that. too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like, and I've said this to you too, like un, un, until all white people are angry, right? And are here and doing this work yeah. and are advocating for this, I don't think anything is going to change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you. Um, and I appreciate that recognition. And I hope that that's... Uh, I hope that folks heard what you just said because yeah. it, it got me good. So, yeah. Well, I think, you know, you said we need all, all white people. And I think we talked about this before. I don't remember when, mm-hmm. um, but we only need 3%. 
right? To yeah. make like actual social change. And I yes. think that's that's a part of um, of what sort of history tells us is that like three percent of people need to show up and show out, and and real changes happen. Um, right. So that's not that many. It's really I not. Mean, you know, okay. in the, in the scale of the, right, it's a lot of people, but uh, you know, um, yeah. So that that's also part of this work too. Um, but yeah. So um, I wanted to to also add, right? Like Miriam Kaba calls on us to struggle with other people, which I think is part of what I was talking about. Yes, absolutely. Right? Um, she says nothing that we do that's worthwhile is done alone. Right. Nothing that we do that's worthwhile is done alone. Yes. So we have to find our people. Right. And so um, she mentions Ella Baker used to ask people, who are your people um, when she met somebody new? And it's founded in this idea of like, who are we accountable to? Um, because as Miriam Kaba says, that tells me a lot about who you are. Yep. Right. It's like, who are you associated with and what's the work that you're doing in that community? Um, or organization or, or whatever it is, um, right? Like what's your lineage? Yes. Where are you coming from? Um, whose shoulders are you standing on? Um, and so there's this really great uh, sort of anecdote um, where she's talking about, um, I think, defund, divest, and something. There's like a three-word kind of like slogan is not the right word for it, yep. but that's kind of what it was um, last summer that the movement for black lives was using around defund the police. Um, and she named the person that she first heard that from like back in the nineties or something who was um, I think formerly incarcerated. And so he, he was doing abolition work then and, you know, sort of put this out there and then it got picked up and brought along. And right. So um, I didn't, I, I have that highlighted somewhere in the book, but I didn't <laughs> write it down in my notes to talk about here. So I don't have all those details in front of me, but it, it reminds me of that too. Is like, what's your lineage and where are you yes. coming from? And sometimes we don't even know what that lineage is, but it's important to know at least something about where we're coming from and, and where we're trying to go with that. Yeah. All right. So I think let's shift into application okay. and talk about that. So, you know, I think all of this has been application really. I yes. say that I think I say that every episode. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that seemed very relevant to me are the ideas of shifting our mindset from punishment to consequences and how these things encourage the person who caused harm to like take responsibility and accountability for what they did. Yep. Um, so I appreciated that she recognizes that not everyone will fit fit into this frame, right? Um There'll be people advocating for radical reforms that may look like abolition, but they stop short of that. Um, yeah. And so I think that's directly connected to our application work here too. So, right, like if we jump back and think about those principles that you shared um, earlier, and I'll read them out again here, is like, you know, the prison industrial complex abolition calls for elimination of policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. Prison industrial complex abolition calls for or rejects the expansion in breadth or scope or legitimization of all aspects of the prison industrial complex. And that's surveillance, policing, sentencing, and imprisonment of all sorts. And prison industrial complex abolition refuses premature death and organized abandonment, the state's modes of reprisal and punishment. And so I think it's important for us to think about those principles and how they fit us and how they fit our view of how we move forward, right? Because yes. she makes it clear that not everybody fits into this frame. Right. 
Um, and so if, if these don't fit what your view is, what does, right? And how do you fight for those? Uh, and are they connected to our struggle here um, in abolition work? Um, and where do we intersect that we can work together on certain things, right? Um, so, you know, what, what does your imagination tell you that our future can be um, collectively? I think, you know, anyone can point out, and I mean anyone, can point out a piece of the criminal punishment system that is inhumane and they, that they would want to change or get rid of or something, right? Like I think yep. that, yeah, there, there are even um, very, very conservative uh, Republicans who have been working with Cory Booker for years on sort of prison reform too. Um, and again, that's reform. And so that's not necessarily what I'm talking about or attached to, but everybody can find something that, that, that is inhumane and that they think should change. Yeah. Right. I think Newt Gingrich was even on that. Yeah. So, right. Um, so yeah. What did these values tell you about you and, and what you want to do? And, if they're not abolitionist values, if these principles don't match what you want to do or what you want to see, like what are those things and finding those things and, and, and finding our imaginations collectively, I think is super important. Oh man. I love all of that. I, yeah. yeah. And, and those principles for sure. I talked about them earlier. I'm glad you brought them mm -hmm. up here in application. And, uh, and I think those questions that you ask, um, and are just so great. Right. And all of that is just great application from this book. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, I, you're right. I think there's so much in terms of application in this book. It's it's actually kind of difficult to consolidate all of my thinking about application here into a succinct thought, uh, but I'm going to try. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the biggest pieces of application that I saw and that I was drawn to um, was in the chapter called Everything Worthwhile is Done with Other People uh, that you just talked about a little bit ago. That was in yeah. part seven. Um and it was an interview, it was part of an interview that Miriam did for, um, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, Adi, A-D-I magazine back in 2019. And it's a great interview because we learn a lot about Miriam's upbringing and her parents, which I think is just always such a cool thing to learn about uh, with the people that you respect and admire. And, you know, Miriam is right there for me. And, you know, so much of who she is and her abolitionist views and framework are clearly influenced by her parents, right? When she shares yeah. the stories about who they are. Um, and, you know, I think one of the many incredible things that she shared in that interview centered around her views on relationships, right? Yep. You know, her belief that when we are in relationship with each other, we influence each other. When we have stronger relationships with each other, it has the capacity to mitigate and transform harm. Um, and, and when we are in relationship with each other, we can work together to envision and, and create a world free of oppression and the prison industrial complex and all of its forms. And, and I really love that, um, uh, you know, especially because I, I'm just, uh, you know, I've talked many times about the concept of humanity uh, for me and how important that is. Yeah. Um, and I just think that there's a lot of ways that we can all benefit from that thinking around the power of relationships that would benefit all aspects of our lives. Um, and again, you know, help us to get to the place that I think we want and need to go. Yeah. I think that that is, I think I've talked about it maybe a few times today. Um, 
one of the cornerstones of abolition is that we are in relationship with one another. Yes. Um, because none of us can be disposable when we are in relationship to one another. Yes. Right? That's a huge point. That yeah. disposability piece. Um, yeah. And we're way more connected than we think we are in general um, because we've been taught to believe in this stringent individualism in the U.S. And so it's it's also this is one of the ways that this, these systems show up in us, right, as in these yeah. values around individualism and, and different things. Um, so, yeah. All right. Uh, so let's talk about homework. Okay. Um, so I briefly mentioned this last week, but I want to lift up again this reading and discussion guide that was created by Rachel Zafer. Yes. Um, so there are 41 really great questions that ask, uh, ask us to reflect on pieces of the text. Um, and then there's also some, like, further reading. Yep. Things to, to follow up with and, and dive deeper into this. Um, but I want to pull two examples of questions out here really quick, just as examples of, of some of the things that are on the discussion guide. Um, but I also think that they are really great homework for people to think about. Um, so what is the difference between self-care and collective care? How can you increase or improve the ways that you practice collective care within your community? And what would a culture of care that nurtures human growth and potential require? Mm. And I wanted to talk about that because so often right now, the conversation around self-care is focused on the self, yeah. right? And not thinking about like, well, what are the conditions in which you're existing that you need self-care, right? And so it's it's always that, it's not always that self-care is superficial, but the the suggestions that a lot of people give for self-care are superficial. Like, well, why don't you just take a bath? Yeah. And light some candles. Mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, all right. But what are the conditions in which I need to get away from my life to relax? And how do we care for each other enough to alleviate those conditions, whatever they might be? Absolutely. Um. And then, so the second question, uh, Miriam Cobbin names several people who are touchstones in her life, including James Baldwin, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and Angela Davis. Who are some of your touchstones and how do you connect to them? How do they inspire or uplift or motivate you? Mm. Um, and so I think that for me connects back to sort of lineage in some ways yep. of like, who are you learning from um, and and how are they influencing you and like moving you forward on your own sort of journey of understanding things, right? Because yes. we all take things in and then they influence what we do and who we, um, what we think and, and how we process the world around us. And I think that this is in, is a really great question to start to think about that. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think that these are two great questions, examples of, of ways that we can dig a little deeper for ourselves into the specific text. So yeah, many thanks again to, to Rachel Zafer for putting this together uh, and doing this work in general, because she's also, there's a little piece at the end of like, I've also done these other books and discussion guides around these other books that were um, also also great books. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I love this reading a discussions, uh, discussion guide and and, and would highly recommend it for anyone who, who reads this book as, as good homework to do as you read uh, or after you finish the book um, to help you do some thoughtful reflection about all of the amazing content in this book. And, you know, and as you say, sort of dive more into your abolitionist practice for sure. So I, I'm going to echo your homework. I, I'm excited to sort of uh, do some of this work for myself as well. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so Damien, you're up next. 
not next week, but next. Uh-huh. Uh, what are you bringing to the table in our next episode? Absolutely. Well, as we've mentioned a couple of times before, we're actually taking a little break. Uh, so our next episode will drop on Wednesday, June 16th. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we're taking two weeks off to recharge um, and also do a little bit of behind the scenes work, which is really exciting. We've got some plans uh, and we've got to make some plans, uh, mm-hmm. but we are definitely looking forward to coming back in a couple of weeks. And so for our 22nd episode of Interdependent Study, I am bringing a book called The End of Policing by Alex Vital to the table. Um, and I think like this book, We Do This Do We Free Us, The End of Policing has also been a book that we've mentioned a couple of times here on the podcast and is one that, you know, we've both wanted to read. So I'm, I'm glad we're finally getting around to it. Yeah. Um, And so this is directly from the publisher's website about the end of policing. It says, this book attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control. Mm. It shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, even public safety. Drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world and covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work, Alex Vital demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. Um, So we are definitely sticking to uh, a similar theme to what we've been talking about in our past couple of episodes here. Uh, But it uh, it seems like this book will focus us a bit more on the conversation about and around policing and law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So I am definitely looking forward to to reading it and and talking about it with you uh and uh yeah i hope folks will uh join us yeah absolutely let's keep this abolition theme going i guess yes, yeah. absolutely um all right so with that we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to interdependent study uh you know what i'm going to ask you to do here but in case you forgot please follow leave a rating and review share our podcast with the people in your life Uh, Give us a follow on social media. Sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things that we've got going on behind the scenes that we might be talking about in the next two weeks. Uh, Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. 